You're listening to a message from Christian Life Ministries in Coventry, a dynamic, growing church in the heart of the nation. We pray that God will speak to you through this word and impact your life for His glory. We're here this morning. It's week two of Passion for the Presence series. Just uh, give me a hand if you were here last week for week one with Dr. John. Okay, fantastic. Thank you. We are passionate about the presence of God. I can vividly remember as a 17-year-old who'd grown up in a church and a family that were very kind of word-based and Bible-based and for which I'm deeply grateful. Gave me a great start out with the Word of God, a great foundation to build on. But coming from that background, I can remember as a 17-year-old for the first time experiencing the tangible manifest presence of God. It stays with me. You see, an older lady in my church had invited me to go with her to a ladies' prayer breakfast where someone called Suzette Hatting would be speaking. I'd never heard of this person. I only found out later that she's kind of a really powerful intercessor who's traveled with someone called Reinhard Bonke, being part of seeing literally millions of people respond to the gospel, particularly across Africa. And what happened that morning in a little Methodist church, not very far from where I lived, as someone began to lead worship on the piano, for the first time, I experienced something of the nearness of the loveliness and the love of God. I'd never tasted that before. I'd never experienced that before. And what happened over the days and weeks that followed is I just wanted to get back to that place. I kept trying to find out what the songs were because they were different to songs that I'd known before. And I was just trying to do anything I could to get back to that place because my soul had tasted something which seemed to satisfy the deepest hunger and the deepest thirst in me that made me feel as though I'd come home. And really in my life, a passion for the presence of God was ignited right there. It's a long time ago, but it's continued to grow. It was great to have Dr. John Andrews with us last week as he kind of kicked off our series and, and cracked this open for us. He took us back to the beginning, to Genesis 1, and considering right back there who God is and why did God make us. If you weren't here, those of you who didn't raise your hand, I'd encourage you to go to the website, listen to the podcast. There was some excellent teaching. And we're seeking through these five weeks to really uh, bring something different every week, which together is going to help us all to move forward in our passion for the presence and our experiencing of the presence of God. So do listen. There's some excellent teaching. And also, you'll find out, amongst other things, why Dr. John will always be better than his sausage dogs. Anna, that's for you to go and find out on there. But last week, really, we began back in Genesis 1, and Dr. John helped us through the scriptures to see that the God who created everything, the God who is almighty and is holy, who's all-powerful, who's self-existent and who needed nothing, that he created man not because he needed him, but because he desired to share himself. He didn't need to, but he desired to share himself. And so he created man in his image, male and female, designed to be able to have intimacy with God. It's what we were made for. But then we considered what happened in Genesis 3 with sin and rebellion against God, and it resulted in Adam and Eve covering themselves. They covered over something of the image of God in them and drew back from intimacy 
with him, hiding themselves among the trees when God came to walk with them in the garden. We were reminded that there's still an enemy today whose desire for us is to be covered up and hiding so that we don't enter God's presence. So we don't get healed and we don't get restored and we don't get reconciled with the one with whom we were created to have intimacy. And having looked at the foundations back in Genesis, Dr. John then brought us to some of the glorious verses in John chapter one where Jesus comes into the picture, taking on the same flesh and the same dust that we were made of in the beginning, and Jesus came to make his dwelling. He came to presence himself among us, coming to reconcile and to redeem us, to restore God's image in us, and to bring us back into intimacy with God. And and he reminded us that both Genesis and Jesus show us that God is passionate for our presence and also that whatever it might cost us to pursue the presence of God, it has already cost him more. Deeply encouraging and powerful truths. And this week I wanna build on these ideas. If you're a note taker and you would like a title, the title is this, you'd better come in. You'd better come in and that will become more obvious later as to why that's the title. But I want us to explore this morning how we respond and engage to these monumental truths. Because how God made us shows that God is passionate for our presence. And the earthly life and the sacrifice of Jesus also testify that he desires us, he's passionate for our presence. So why is it that we don't always think that way? And we don't always feel that way. Monday to Friday, I don't go always about the place thinking, God is just desperate to meet with me. It's not always how I feel. And so I want us just to look at this this morning and to understand a bit of also what's going on in our hearts and in our minds. And I wanna take us to a very well-known verse, a famous verse, Romans 3, verse 23. It's gonna come up on the screen. And it says simply this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's a verse, maybe if you grew up in church, you probably had it as a memory verse at some point. Or maybe you learned it as part of a way that you could help to explain to people why they need God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the truth is that most of us know this. Most of us know that we're not quite enough. We know that the image of God that we were made in has in some way been trampled and defaced. The glory that we were designed to carry has one way or another ebbed away and we find ourselves empty or wanting. The the truth is we feel it. We feel the truth of this scripture. Now of course probably all of us have met one or two people in life uh, who consider themselves flawless. Maybe you work with one, maybe you live with one, that's even more concerning. But you know, if you maybe haven't met those, you can watch them on The Apprentice going about their business and uh, seeing just how unself-aware they are. But you know, most of us are conscious at some level of some sort of ongoing struggle with sin. Whether our insecurities or judgmental or critical thinking, whether it's lust or greed or anger or a lack of self-control, maybe selfishness or just being unloving, maybe being proud where actually you have to be first or you have to be best or you have to be right. If I haven't mentioned the thing that's your thing, well, You can fill in the blank this morning for yourself. It's not an exhaustive list. But the truth is that we live in the daily 
reality of our own fall from glory, our shortcoming. We know it and we feel it. We know it and we feel it. And so when we come to enter the presence of God, when we come to consider this kind of engagement with God, talking with him, being real, then our shortcomings are right there with us. They're right there in our hearts and our lives. It feels like they're right there in our faces sometimes, reminding us that we fell, reminding us that we fall short. And for many of us, something like what happened back in the garden actually can still play out in our lives. You see, we, we all find ourselves tempted by some sin at some point. Maybe some pleasure or self-promotion or malicious words or something. We can all get tempted towards something that we know is not good for us or is not good for someone else. Maybe the website we know will feed our lust or the gossip about a colleague or a friend with someone else. Maybe the Netflix binge watching of a box set that we know actually doesn't really do us much good on the inside, but we, we get tempted by all kinds of things. And sometimes we resist. Those are the good days, right? But sometimes we don't. Sometimes also, it's worth saying, there can be a spiritual component to this. We might call it an attack that almost comes and sits on our natural temptation and intensifies it. Trying to push us into the sin. It's good for us to remember, it says in 1 Corinthians, that God will never let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And when you're tempted, he'll also provide a way out under it. But the reality is that sometimes we resist and sometimes we don't. And when we don't, something, what happens on the inside of us and what follows can be so much like what happened in the garden because when we're conscious that we've not lived up to what we were designed for, when we're conscious that we've fallen short again, what we often feel is condemnation. What we often feel is shame. We can also feel that we deserve to feel ashamed and we should feel ashamed. You know, the Holy Spirit doesn't bring condemnation. He brings conviction, which will show us what our sin is, but it doesn't make us feel wretched in the same way that condemnation and shame do. And when we're feeling these feelings of condemnation and shame, should we feel or be called into some setting of coming close to God? If you like, the equivalent of Adam and Eve hearing God coming to walk with them in the garden, and how we feel in that moment is that we need to hide. It's like, I don't want to be found here. I don't want to be found like this. I don't want to be seen. And so we hide and we withdraw and we close off. We don't go to life group that week. We don't reply to the text from the person we know who's passionate about God. And when we come to church on Sunday, maybe we sit a little bit further the back. Don't look around now. It's not the point. It's not what, it's about. Not what I'm saying. You may have very good reason to be sitting at the back today. I'm just saying what can happen in every single one of us as this plays out. Because we live in, in the daily consciousness and reality of our own sin. And it impacts us. We know it. We feel it. We've not yet been changed fully to be like Jesus. Although we will be one day when we see him. But right here and now, the sense of our fallenness can still get in the way of our connection with God, of our coming into his presence. We're so conscious of the truth of Romans 3.23. 
A few years ago, or well, many years ago actually, I was talking with my sister, I can't remember the full conversation, but I remember quoting this verse, Romans 3.23, and she got really angry with me. Now the truth is she used to get angry with me quite a lot of things back then, but this one was really reasonable. She said, I hate it when people take this verse out of its full context. And she was absolutely right, because when we take this verse and we just quote it alone, as I have started with this morning, all we do is we reinforce our consciousness of how we've fallen short. And actually, it's important that we see it in the glory of its full context. And let's read these verses that are going to come up on the screen. Paul, writing to the Romans, he'd unpacked about the fact that man was sinful and had fallen and had messed up. And then when we get to Romans 3, he's actually talking about the glory of what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. Let me read it to you. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. Here comes the verse. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. So when we just learn Romans 3, 23, we don't even finish the sentence. It's the same sentence. I mean, I know Paul does some long sentences, but it's the same sentence, and we miss out that we are also all justified, which means we're made right freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Now, I understand this language in the NIV, which is where I've just read it from, can be a little tricky to get our heads around. So I just wanna read the same verses from the message because it just makes it hit home a little more. He's saying this, but in our time, something new has been added. What Moses and the prophets witnessed to all those years has happened. The God setting things right that we read about has become Jesus setting things right for us, and not only for us, but for everyone who believes in him. For there's no difference between us and them in this. Since we've compiled this long and sorry record as sinners and proved that we're utterly incapable of living the glorious lives God wills for us, God did it for us. Out of sheer generosity, he put us in right standing with himself, a pure gift He got us out of the mess we're in and restored us to where he always wanted us to be. And he did it by the means of Jesus Christ. God sacrificed Jesus on the altar of the world to clear the world of sin. Having faith in him sets us in the clear. It's so important we don't stop at the end of verse 23 of our long and sorry list that we've compiled because We've all been justified freely by his grace that came through the redemption of Christ Jesus. If we stop at the end of Romans 3.23, we're simply reminded that we've fallen short. But if we continue, we understand that having faith in Jesus actually sets us in the clear. Out of sheer generosity, God has done this for us, a pure gift, he says. God did it. This is grace, totally undeserved. This is the only way we can come in, but God did it 
before us. We can come into his presence because he's made the way. The truth is our own fallenness reminds us daily of our condition. It's there for us, it's in our faces. When we look in the mirror, we'll see it. And we need the truth of the Bible to remind us that the story doesn't end there. This is why we need the truth of the word, friends, because our feelings don't always tell us the whole story. Some of it will line up, but we need the truth of the word to tell us that it didn't stop there. And God came so that it did not finish there, but to do something that would open the door for us. But the truth is that even when we read about grace and even when we understand that that's true, some of us, for grace is such a rare concept in our world that we struggle with it. We don't really know what to do with it. You know, how many of us in this room, even with the people we love the most, if we did something for them or if they did something for us, we might still say, thank you, I I owe you one. I owe you one. If that's the kind of language we use, it's an indication we we haven't yet understood grace. That we can lavish on other people things that are undeserved and we can allow them to lavish that on us. And we don't always have to go by what's earned and what's deserved because grace is a different standard. But often because grace is so unusual in the world that we live in, so unusual in the relationships where we do most of our interacting, that we can end up focusing instead of the gray, on the grace, on our own undeservedness and the fact that we don't really deserve to be given anything by God. When our children were very small and uh, I was a full-time mom in that season and Martin on staff for a church, our income was also very small. And as somebody in that season, very kindly, a businessman in the church, offered to pay for us to go and have dinner in a restaurant that we normally couldn't consider, uh, probably even going in for a drink. It was not in our price range. It was way out of our price range. At one level, you could say, we didn't deserve to go to that restaurant. We couldn't afford to go to that restaurant. But our friend said that he would like to treat us. And so we, we arranged a date and we got dressed up and off we went. Now, when we went that evening, our friend hadn't entirely and exactly communicated quite how this was going to work. Now, of course, learning for us, we should have checked that out before going. We weren't sure if we were actually going to pay and then he was going to pay us back or something different. So when we arrived, we looked at the menu, realized if we were going on us paying, it was going to be a bread roll. You know the kind of place I'm talking about. If we were going on what we could afford, on what we deserved, that's what it was going to be. And yet we'd been invited to something different. And so we had to choose whether we were gonna believe what our friend had said, whether we were gonna trust what he said he'd set up. And so we selected what we wanted from the menu. I think we each had three courses that evening. We believed him. And uh, we, we took what he had told us to be true. We sat at the table, ate what we didn't deserve and what we couldn't pay for. And we enjoyed a lovely evening albeit maybe becoming a little anxious towards the end of the evening, but we enjoyed a lovely evening. And we ate at a table that we couldn't afford to eat at. And at the end of the evening, the waiter came to us and he said, your bill has been settled, you have nothing to pay. Your bill has been settled, you have nothing to pay. And friends, this is a picture, if you like, of what's been done for us in Christ. That Jesus has paid for us to sit at a table that we couldn't afford to sit at. That we didn't deserve to go there because we've fallen short. 
The merit that our lives could provide is not there. And so he's paid for the place instead. And the table's been set and the table's been made ready. And it's all there and we've been invited to come and eat. At his expense, we've been justified freely by his grace. But then the question comes to us, will we accept the place? Will we go, will we have the audacity, if you like, to go and sit at a table that we can't afford to sit at? To come into his presence by grace? Will we dare to order something we know we can't afford? Will we eat believing that the bill has been settled by somebody else, knowing that we can't pay it for ourselves? Imagine if we'd gone that evening, and because we weren't sure exactly how it all worked, Imagine if we'd not been completely sure if we could believe our friend and we just said, okay, let's both just have bread and soup and then we know if this all goes wrong, uh, at least we're not gonna find ourselves embarrassed. And then at the end of the evening, the waiter would have come, probably would have thought we were a bit unusual and would then have come and said, um, your bill has been settled, you've got nothing to pay. And we'd have gone, oh no, what a waste all those things on the menu that I could have had, things we would have enjoyed. And, that, and our friend might have been a bit puzzled as well. He would have said, you know, what, what were you doing? I'd paid for you to go and feast. Why didn't you feast? I wanted you to enjoy yourselves. Why did you take so little? That was not what I'd planned for, for you. My friends, as we seek to embrace and to grow a passion for God's presence, it, it requires us to believe and accept that the bill has been paid. It requires us to be bold enough to come and sit at a table we know we don't deserve to be at, but that we believe that a place has been set for us. And so we're gonna go and sit at it, and we're gonna order, and we're gonna eat. Even if we feel a bit out of place at times, because we know that a place has been made for us. It means moving beyond our pride, because there's part of us that wants to pay. There's part of us that wants to be independent and wants to be in control, yeah? The idea of a free meal sounds nice, but it can be uncomfortable to receive a pure gift. It requires some humility. As Jesus came and paid the full price, and opened up, and it's all ready for us, but it takes us to enter in and to sit at the table. Isaiah 55 puts the invitation like this, come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. This is the, inv the invitation that is made to us to understand we have nothing. We've got none of the currency that God requires, but he still says, come, come buy, come eat, come feast at my table. And when we're coming to the table and when we're coming and thinking about approaching God and God's presence, sometimes we can think we need to be transformed first. We know I think there's a few things I need to sort out first. Now I've journeyed with people and they, you share God and they're like, yeah, I know, I know, I know, but I just need to sort some things out first. You know some of those people. You've got them around your life now. But actually the truth is that we need to come as we are and let him transform us there. We don't have to be transformed to come to the table 
We have to come to the table and let him transform us there. I want you to look with me this morning at one of Jesus' famous encounters. We're going to put it up on here and read the story from Luke chapter 19. Here we find Jesus, he's just about to go into Jerusalem. This is one of the last encounters we read of in Luke before Jesus goes to the cross. And it says this, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short and he could not see over the crowd, because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and begun to, began to mutter, he has gone to the guest of a sinner. But, G but Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now, I'll give half my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, if you grew up in church, you'll have heard of Zacchaeus, because this is what you learn about. When the children go out, Zacchaeus is a favorite, because you can draw pictures of men in trees and color them in and that sort of thing. And there was even a song when I was growing up, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Some of you will know that wonderful song. I looked up and could find it online this week. Amazing what you can find on YouTube. We sing about him affectionately, but the reality is that on that afternoon when Jesus was passing through Jericho, the people around him hated him like full on would have hated this man. I mean, to start with, he was a chief tax collector. If you're here this morning and you're a respectable employee of HMRC, I'm sorry, but we don't like people who take our money. Now, we love you and you're welcome, but there is a part of us we don't like people who take our money, yeah. But also this man, he was wealthy. For him to be a tax collector meant that he'd aligned himself with the Roman soldiers who were occupying Israel at that time. So already, he's kind of been a traitor because he's working for the occupying forces. Then he's not only making money and cheating people because tax collectors always took more than they were meant to take because that's how they got money for themselves. He also was a chief tax collector, which meant he oversaw some other tax collectors and would be getting a, a cut of their cheating as well. So this is a man who'd got wealthy by other people becoming poor. It's pretty despicable. He was a traitor, he was a cheat, he would have been despised. The people around him that afternoon would have seen him over the previous months and years becoming more rich. They'd have seen him becoming more wealthy. His household would have changed, getting more servants, getting nicer clothes, getting a faster car, faster donkey, whatever it would have been. They'd have watched it, him getting stuff with their money. How would that work out on your street? I know it wouldn't go well on ours. You know, we can all think about what this man would have deserved, but here was an example of somebody who had fallen short of the glory of God. Here he is. Humanity at its fallen worst. And bizarrely hiding in a tree wanting to get a view of Jesus, this despicable man looking on. And what does Jesus do? 
When Jesus comes to the spot where he is, it says he looks up and he said, Zacchaeus, you need to come down immediately. Come down immediately because I'm going to stay at your house today. And Zacchaeus is delighted and off they go and he hosts Jesus. He gets to have Jesus' presence in his house. And the people are left behind. They're muttering. They're grumbling. They're spitting feathers. They can't believe it. As you and I would be the same if we had somebody like that in our midst and Jesus chose them. You can imagine the disgust with which they said it. They were not happy. Because Zacchaeus didn't deserve this. He did not deserve the presence of Jesus in his house. But it seemed that Jesus chose and welcomed the worst. It's like he looked around on that day and chose the worst. It's also interesting to note that when Jesus said to Zacchaeus, I'm going to stay at your house today, these words, these are not the words of someone who was popping in for a quick cuppa. He wasn't saying, I'm just going to come in, I'm going to eat some chicken, then I'm going to be off. He wasn't coming in to do an offstead and then clear off again. The word to stay means something altogether different. If you're familiar with scripture, it's the word that's used again and again in John chapter 15, where Jesus talks about remaining in him like a branch in the vine. It's like an ongoing thing, staying. It means abide. It means dwell. It means living, a state that begins and continues. And although Jesus wasn't going to remain physically in that house, he was coming for his presence to remain. Jesus met him on the street, perhaps the most undeserving person in the crowd that day, and said, I'm going to bring my presence to come and to remain in your house from today. And so Zacchaeus, the cheat, the despised, the hated, the greedy, the supremely selfish, the undeserving, the worst, finds himself desired, finds himself accepted, finds himself welcomed, finds that the Son of God is passionate about his presence. That before heading into Jerusalem to die, Jesus wanted to connect with Zacchaeus. He didn't deserve it, no way. But Jesus could see beyond the sin and the mess and the defaced image of God in him and he desired his presence and he came to dwell with him. He came and he welcomed the worst. I don't know if Zacchaeus could ever have sorted himself out by himself. Would he ever have come good? Would he ever have turned over a new leaf? I don't know. But as he hosted Jesus, as Jesus' presence was in his house, something happens to Zacchaeus. And he goes and he announces in front of the very people who'd been disgusted that Jesus would go to him, that he's going to give half his possessions away to the poor, that he's going to pay back anyone who's cheated four times the amount. You know, these are the things that we think Zacchaeus should have done to make him respectable enough for Jesus to come to his house, yeah? We all think you should have done this first, and then we wouldn't have grumbled that you'd gone there. It would all have looked comfortable, and it wouldn't have been so offensive. But he didn't do it first. He hadn't done any of those things. It was while he was still a despicable cheat up a tree that Jesus came and found him to encounter him. And when Zacchaeus encountered him, when he found himself welcomed, when he found himself accepted, loved, experienced the presence of God, that's when his heart began to change. That's when his behavior began to change. Perhaps because his greed was swallowed up in something altogether more precious and valuable 
the real treasure, which, friends, is what we find when we come to the presence of God, the nearness of the loveliness and the love of God, which is way beyond anything else this world can give us. And Jesus, in that moment, he explains that the Son of Man actually came to seek and to save what was lost. He actually came to find the despicable. He actually came to find the cheat, to remind him of the image and restore in him the image in which he was created. He came to find the lost and the dead in their sin to bring them back. He came to find the despised and to restore intimacy with God for them. He came to find the worst and to welcome them. He came to find the worst and to welcome them. That's what the saving presence of Jesus does. We can think we need to get ourselves sorted to come into the presence of God and present ourselves at our best. But all that really is is a a vain attempt to try and see if we can find another way in, really. Because the only way in is through the grace of Jesus because he did it for us. Even if we muster our very, very best, we'll still never be able to afford a place at this table that we're talking about. But he has made the way. We cannot change ourselves to be able to enter God's presence. But rather, we can be changed when we enter, when we encounter him. And actually, his presence is not meant to be a goal we will attain to one day when we're good enough, but we're meant to come in now, and that process of engaging with God is part of the journey of him changing us and restoring in us the image for which he created us. I believe Jesus picked out Zacchaeus so we would know that he welcomed the worst. And he wanted us to know that so that we could understand that he welcomes us at our worst. He welcomes us at our worst. Most of us can sometimes come to accept that Jesus might accept us at our best, but he welcomes us at our worst. And he begins to transform us. His presence is the means of transformation. It's the way that we change. It's why we have to come to him as we are. Take off the masks, stop pretending, just come as we are. Good day, bad day, come anyway. Best day, worst day, show up anyway. And you'll find yourself loved and accepted and welcomed in his presence. Now, of course, it's true that when we do encounter God, he does illuminate what's really going on in us. If we have got sin, if we have got stuff, we will see it for what it is. But when we come into the genuine presence of God, we won't find condemnation and we won't find shame. The things that make us want to hide, that is not what we find in the presence of God. What we find is love and acceptance of us, whilst maybe the sin and the things that we're struggling with We might see, and they might be brought to light, but we see them differently, not as part of us, but as something that can be removed from us. And normally in those moments, we desire for them to be removed because we see the love of a savior who's just trying to make us more like him, who's trying to do the very thing in us that we desire for him to do, which is to restore us and reconcile us. It's true that his presence will lead us to repentance. It will lead us to change. It says in Titus 2 
that the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness. You see, what happens is when we find ourselves accepted, when we find ourselves welcomed at the table, when we find that he was always looking for us even at our worst, and we taste that grace, that kindness, that mercy, then actually we taste something of the glory that we were designed for and we want it. And it helps us to say no to the other stuff that can hold us and have power over us when we're not connecting with God. Jesus came to bring his presence to us at our worst. The verse has already been said through this, this morning's service, Romans 5 verse 8, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, essentially means while we were at our worst, our most despicable, he gave himself for us then. He saw me, he saw you at your worst. He chose to give himself for you. Do you know that you have nothing, there's nothing worse that he can see or know about you because he already sees and knows it all. Whether you've spoken to him about it or not, he still sees and knows about it. He knows you need saving, he knows you need cleaning and he welcomes us at our worst. When our children were younger, we lived on a little crescent and our children used to play out on the street with some of our neighbor's children. And over the road lived a little boy called Eddie and he was in between the ages of our two boys. And most evenings after tea, they would all go and play out on the street. And Eddie's family would eat every day about 30 minutes before we did. And we know this because literally every day when we sat down at the table to eat our dinner, there would be a ring on the doorbell. And it would be Eddie and he would be saying, a salmon Nathan there to play. And every day we would say, We've just sat down to dinner, they'll come out when they're done. This was just like what happened every day, every day, every day. One day, sat down to dinner, doorbell rings. Martin goes, we know who it's going to be. Of course, it's Eddie. A salmon Nathan there. We just sat down to dinner. But this day, Eddie didn't walk away to go and find something else to do while he waited. He said, I've just spilled a chocolate milkshake over my dad's laptop. So Martin said, you'd better come in. You better come in. We knew, we knew what this meant. You better come in. And Eddie came and sat around the table as we ate our dinner and we all shared stories with him about mistakes that we'd made, bad decisions that we'd, uh, we'd called and tried to just make him feel a little bit better. It's a silly story, but it's really just to illustrate. In our worst moments, sometimes we can be least inclined to go to God for help. You know, if we're sick or something external comes into our lives, then we'll go to him. But if we know really it was of our own making, it was my own choice, it was my own mistake, it was my own sin, then actually we don't want to go in those moments because we know we're at our worst. We feel like we can't turn up on his doorstep in our desperate state. But you know if we were to try it, you know, if you were to turn up on his doorstep at your worst moment, in your most despicable state, do you know what he'd say? He'd say, you better come in. You better come in. Because this can be sorted, but it ain't going to be sorted anywhere else. So you better come in. But sometimes in our hearts, we think he'll be like that with us at our best, but not at our worst. And so some days we'll come, and some days we won't. You know, if we can grasp that we're welcome to our worst, then really this signals the end of the power of sin in our lives. Because what it means is that whenever we're struggling, whenever we're wrestling with a thought or a response or an emotion that's ugly and sinful, at that moment when we know he'll welcome us at our worst, then we can cry out to him and he'll come. 
I've found that if I, can, if I can do that, not so much now when I find myself somewhere, because I don't tend to find myself in situations now, but I find things in me, in my thinking, where my thoughts are going in a direction, and I'm slightly horrified at myself, that in those moments, I can run to him and say, Jesus, I need you now. I don't know why I'm here, I, but I don't, I don't want to try and get myself out of this without you, because I don't know if I will, and I don't know where it will lead me. But I've learned that I can run to him at my worst, and he welcomes me. And so I'm not battling my biggest sins on my own anymore. But it's critical for us that we understand that we can come at our worst and that he welcomes us. What would it look like for you to come to Jesus at your worst, at your most despicable moment? And I want to invite you just to picture this. I know this may be strange as we're coming to the end of a sermon. I don't wish to bring condemnation or, or shame, but I want you to picture yourself at your worst. And I want you to do that so that you can then picture Jesus coming to you in that place and saying to you like he did to Zacchaeus, I want to presence myself in your house today. In that moment, in your worst moment, coming and finding you, saying I want to be with you. See, the truth is that's what he did when he called you. That's what he did when he found you, and it hasn't changed. He knew what he was signing up to. He knew the full measure of your mess, past, present, future, and he knows he's the only one that can clean you up, and it's what he desires to do more than anything else. It's what he came to do while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Friends, as we seek to grow in a passion for the presence of God, we want to help us all to move beyond anything that would stop us from coming right into the presence of God, sometimes or for some reason. Any sort of thought that thinks we need to get our stuff sorted first, no. We can only ever enter his presence by grace and then let him change us there. Enter first, change comes later. And change will come. We won't genuinely keep encountering God and remain the same. But the door is open to us all. There's nothing you've done. There's nothing you've been involved in that he doesn't know about. There's nothing that can rule you out. He paid the full price. I'm going to invite the band to come. In a moment, we're going to worship. We're going to come to him. We're going to, I trust, come with open hearts this morning. It is true, we have all sinned and we do fall short of the glory of God. But God has come and put it right for us. God did it for us. Out of sheer generosity, a, a pure gift is what he came and he did for us. If you are someone who likes a three-point sermon, here are your three points to take away today, that God did it for us. Secondly, that he welcomes the worst. Jesus welcomes the worst. And thirdly, he welcomes us at our worst. He welcomes us at our worst. Which means the day, today the door is open for you. Today you are welcome. Whether it's a good day or a bad day, the best or the worst, the door's open for you to come into his presence through Jesus Christ. And today he comes to say to you, you better come in. The truth is, whether it is a good day, the best day, or the worst day, you still need him to keep working in your life, just like I do. And he says, you better come in. You better come in. 
Hebrews 4.16 says, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I don't know if you've realized yet, but one of your biggest needs is dealing with yourself. One of my biggest needs, maybe my biggest need is dealing with myself. But I can come to him to find grace and mercy for this and for every need. In a moment, we're gonna stand and we're gonna worship together. I wanna encourage us as we finish here this morning to enter into a new season of our engagement with God. I want you to put away a day when you only came on your best days. I want us to put aside a season where we thought we were mustering ourselves to some position where we might be respectable. And can I invite us to begin entering in as those who come as we are, who come knowing that we don't deserve it and we can't pay the bill, but that it has been paid and who come just saying, Jesus, I need you. I want you. Thank you for letting me sit at your table. Help me feast on you. Let me know that you love me and you accept me and then help me deal with the things that need dealing with. But come first. I wonder if I can invite us to stand to our feet and I'm gonna pray. I'm conscious as we worship this morning. I do believe in this season and this series as we're preaching that we're gonna inhabit something different as people, as individuals and corporately. And so sometimes, you know, we have to do something different. I wanna encourage you, some of you need to get out your seats this morning. Just saying, I'm so grateful for this. I wanna enter into something new of the presence of God. And you just need to get out and come to the front. But let's enter in and come to engage with Him this morning. But let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truths of your word that show us that you are passionate about our presence, that show the lengths that you went to, sheer generosity, a pure gift of grace at the highest price made possible through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we say thank you that you've opened the door Thank you that you've made a way that I can come on my best day and I can come on my worst day and whichever it is, you say you better come in. And I thank you, Lord, for your presence that seeks to make a home in every one of us and to keep working in us and changing us to will and to act according to your good purpose. This is what you can do in us. But it always begins with us coming into your presence and it begins with your work in us. And Lord, we just pray, even as we worship now, Holy Spirit, would you break shame off hearts and lives? Would you break condemnation off us that causes a battle on the inside of us? And would you come and minister your love and your acceptance and your grace that would cause us to run into your presence today and from this day? And Lord, that for us as a people, nothing would hold us back from you, nothing at all. So come and help us, Holy Spirit, to enter in and to walk in everything that you have with great gratitude, Lord. Amen.